Welcome back to Street Talk. Connor Leahy is a walking encyclopedia of AI alignment and artificial general intelligence knowledge. Most of science, of doing science, is about taste. Connor thinks the intelligence explosion is near. He thinks that artificial general intelligence is a bit like climate change, but worse. Even harder problems, even shorter deadlines, and even worse consequences for the future. These problems are incredibly hard, and nobody knows what to do about it. How can we make the world a better place? How can we ensure that humans get what they want and that whatever we become in the far future, the other races of the, spe of the galaxy, if they exist, are proud of what we've become? We started by speaking about some of the different schools of thought in AI alignment research. Miri is basically trying to develop this for intelligence. How can we reason about this in a way that will apply to potentially future super intelligent systems? We touched on the core concept of intelligence many times in today's conversation. I take a very practical approach. I say intelligence is the ability to solve problems. In a way, it's a cul-de-sac for us to get bogged down in defining intelligence and debating whether or not current systems are intelligent. Because Stuart Russell said the primary concern is not spooky emergent consciousness, but simply the ability to make high quality decisions. GPT-3 was recently released by OpenAI to much fanfare and hype. But is it really intelligent? And can it really reason? Have you ever talked to a school kid after they you know, wrote an essay? There's no understanding. They have no idea. It's just regurgitation. It's just babbling. I think it's an open problem whether humans are intelligent or not. That is the specific <laughs> argument that I made, at least, wasn't that GPT-3 isn't intelligent, but that GPT-3 isn't doing whatever you might call reasoning. This is one of the main problems in intelligence, because as you pointed out, even in humans, you can teach kids how to do their times tables and what the rules are for multiplication, and they can use their system too, but after a while, they will just memorize the results and they'll shortcut, and this, this problem of imitation is pervasive. And neural networks are interesting, because if you look at AlphaGo, I said earlier, almost taking the piss a little bit, that it's memorized all of the moves. But of course it hasn't because there are an incredibly high number of possible moves. What it's actually done is it's through self-play, it's generated a whole bunch of data and then it's created this hierarchical entangled representation of all of these different board positions. And then inside that convex hull of possible positions, it's cleverly interpolating between them. That's exactly what GPT does. But Connor makes an absolutely huge call about GPT-3. I think GPT-3 is artificial intelligence, AGI. I think GPT-3 is as intelligent as a human. And I think that actually is probably more intelligent than a human in a restricted way, in a very specific way. I also believe that in many ways, it is more purely intelligent than humans are. I think that humans are approximating what GPT-3 is doing, not all, vice versa. We don't know what GPT-3 does. We do not know. The magic of Turing universality means that you know, even a very modestly powerful algorithm can approximate any other possible algorithm. Many of us were talking past each other when we used the word intelligence. Maybe we should just stop using the word intelligence completely. Maybe it doesn't help us. Intelligence is what Marvin Minsky called a suitcase word. You could pack all these different definitions into it, and yeah. they don't have to be compatible. Let's taboo the word intelligence. No one is allowed to say intelligence uh, for now. Instead, we're going to try to use different things. We're going to use like sample efficiency. We're going to use com computational efficiency, performance. That would be a great advice, I think, for the whole field. So there is a definition of intelligence of compression. There's this idea that intelligence is 
the compression, the exploitation in the structure of the space of the search function is that a more intelligent system can reach a better approximation of the correct answer in a smaller polynomial amount of steps. Back in 2017, Connor thought that deep learning was dead. I was convinced in 2017 that the bubble has burst. Deep learning is dead. Like, why do we even research it? Are you kidding me? Matrix multiplications? Wow, intelligence, boys, we did it. It's, you know, it seemed so preposterous. I looked at the brain and had all this complexity. I, I came from neuroscience to a large degree. One of my first love was neuroscience. There have been plenty of naysayers about GPT-3. Gary Marcus is probably the most well-known. But Connor thinks that Gary is barking up the wrong tree, that GPT-3 is really intelligent, and the way it behaves is just a function of how it's been formulated and trained. Gary Marcus saying things like, oh, look, I asked the AGI, if, I asked GPT-3 if a mouse is bigger than an elephant, and it said yes. So obviously it's stupid. But I think this is like measuring a fish's fitness by its ability to climb. What you're articulating is that GPT-3 is an autoregressive language model, and yes. all it's doing is predicting the next word. Yes. And frankly, it's incredible that it does as well as it does, because yes. it seems to have learned this Im implicit knowledge base, yes. um, even though you've never told it what to do. So GPT-3, at the moment, it's rubbish. All it does is, is produce coherent text. It'll say that elephants can fit through doors. It's just completely stupid. It's not just better than GPT-2. It is remarkably better. What scared me the most in the GPT-3 paper was this straight line of perplexity. No, I, I see it's a log plot, but no sign of slowing down. Like no sign that there is ever an end inside where we can just throw in 10 times more compute and 10 times more data and we get out 10 times better. Is that what the humans do, all they do is just they take the generating function of the real world and they regurgitate that. And one output of that is, is language, right? So that's how they produce the language corpora. But all they do is basically just learn the generating function of the universe itself. We spoke about the great lookup thought experiment. Imagine you had an agent who is composed of a lookup table of all possible states the universe could be and an intelligent output to it. Is this intelligent or not? I think that this is one of those questions that is basically incoherent because constructing such a table is fundamentally impossible. The Komovarov complexity, the length of the shortest program that generates that table might be small. That's important. It might be that there is a small program that can generate that table. It can be that the Komovarov complexity of that table is small. And then, so then it's like the question, assuming I have this short program, assuming I have a short program, that can generate this lookup table for any subspot I want, for any possible thing, is that not intelligence? We spoke about Newcomb's paradox, some advanced decision problems, and also the concept of human rationality in general. I feel a lot of the Kahneman experiments are just that we might not have the best notion of utility function yet. I feel like this, also this box example, doesn't that kind of go almost into the nature of whether or not we are a deterministic machine. Connor thinks that AI alignment is very close to economics. I'm going to make the argument that Newcomb's paradox is the default in human interactions. I think we all of us encounter Newcomb's paradoxes all the time in, in one very simple scenario, social interactions. Connor thinks that AI alignment is very closely related to economics. I figured it out is that economics is the same problem as AI alignment. 
The economy is a very smart optimizing agent. It can optimize very complex parameters. Free market economy is in many ways like a kind of distributed backpropagation algorithm run on humans. What should we do if we're dealing with an artificial superintelligence which is significantly more intelligent than us? How would it take over the world? Say, well, maybe it'll invent this technology, but that technology seems unlikely invented. It could do this instead. But what if it does this instead? And that doesn't get us anywhere. I, I, I want to like short circuit this and say, if you're dealing with an entity that by definition is much more intelligent than you, you should try to predict what it will do. Formal decision theory is interesting from the perspective of trying to understand very powerful AIs. We might be able to say things about how these incredibly intelligent systems operate, even without us ourselves being that intelligent. And a lot of time today talking about the dichotomy between utility functions and intelligence. If it was an adversarial interaction between me and an embodied AI, it doesn't really make sense to say this AI wants to win. What does that even mean? Argument number one, intelligence is going to be very powerful. Argument number two, instrumental convergence happens. Argument number three, defining correct utility functions is very hard. Argument number four, by uh, defining human values is extremely high or extremely low entropy. It's of all possible value functions. The value functions that capture human values are an extremely small subset. We speak about some of the challenges in decision theory and stability and robust delegation. So wireheading is a problem is that if a, a reinforcement learning agent takes control of their own reward signal, why would they not just set it to infinity and never do anything again? If we do build super intelligent systems, how can we ensure that the world will be a better place as a result? I actually think that we should not want a robot that will do anything we say. I would prefer that if I told my robot, go murder innocent children, the robot says, no, I'm not going to do that. I want people to be happy. I want suffering to be minimized by whatever means possible. I do not give a single shit how we achieve a better world. I just care about us achieving a better world. A MISA optimizer is an optimizer that's found autonomously from a base optimizer by searching over a space of possible functions. Humans are a MESA optimizer for evolution designed us looking for a function that maximizes inclusive fitness, but we optimize for completely different things for like happiness and stupid stuff like that. We are the AI that went out of control as well as not making paper clips. Instead of making babies, we're curing cancer and stuff like that. That is definitely not what, the, what, our, what evolution intended. We speak about the concept of the stop button problem. If we build a super intelligence, how could we turn it off? Is it even possible to turn it off? I think the, the whole off button debate, because if we end up building an AI like this, there's no way we shut off Google. I believe that intelligence is externalized and Google, the corporation, is a form of externalized intelligence. And it's nebulous and diffuse and it's self-healing. If you attack Google, they have teams of lawyers that will respond to your attack. The concept of human rationality and free will is ever present when you talk about decision theory. We also talk about the Dutch booking problem. There's a philosophical debate about what is rational? What is the correct definition of the world rational? What, if you could modify your own rationality, the idea about Dutch booking is that assuming you have someone who can offer you bets that you can take or refuse, and that this person can reliably offer you bets in such a way that you will always lose money. And what about the relationship between AI alignment and AI ethics? I have both very flattering and very spicy things to say about AI ethics as it currently is practiced. <laughs> it's trying to put out your handkerchief fire while your house is on fire. We also spend some time talking about interpretability. 
Chris Olar has done more for machine learning interpretability than any other person, I think, in the last few years. He believes that it is possible to understand deep learning. I once saw this great graph. It's like the, the y-axis is like interpretability and the x-axis is strength of the model. And so it starts really high. Like simple models are really easy to understand. And then as it goes up like a little bit, the model is confused and can't really make good concepts. So it's hard to understand. Then it goes back up because uh, the model can make like crisp, clean, definitely cut up, you know, concepts in a more meaningful way. It's like where humans and where our current AI systems are. And then it plunges because eventually it just becomes so intelligent. It becomes so powerful that it's just no computationally reducible way to understand what it is supposed to do. Public figures such as Stephen Hawking, Elon Musk, and Sam Harris think that we need to be super worried about artificial general intelligence. They believe in the concept of an intelligence explosion or the singularity. Cholet, and he's my favorite person in the world, but he did write an article criticizing the intelligence explosion. He, he says that intelligence is situational. There's no such thing as general intelligence. Your brain is one piece in a broader system, which includes your body, your environment, other humans, culture as a whole. No system exists in a vacuum. A very simple thought experiment is that assume I make an intelligence as smart as a human, just as smart as a single human, right? And now we just run it a million times faster. But this assumes that virtualization of a mind is even possible. Uh, Wittgenstein's uh, argument about having a conversation with a lion. Our intelligence, how we perceive intelligence, is fundamentally linked to not just biology, but the systems we interact with. Children that are raised in the wild, they don't ever really come back. We don't currently see anything that hints that there's anything special about intelligence. I've tried something a bit different today. I've summarized a lot of the core talking points into a 15-minute introduction. And it might just be an interesting way of getting a looking glass into some of the topics that we covered today. So if you think that that's a, a cool way of doing it, then let me know. Anyway, remember to like, comment, and subscribe. I hope you enjoy the episode, and we'll see you back next week. Hello. Hey, Connor. How you doing, man? Hi, uh, doing good, doing good. I just exploded <laughs> on a nature interviewer about politics the other day. Oh, did you? <laughs> <laughs> I've got yeah. to say, though, that the missed opportunity to turn that beard into some weird, spiky, devilish thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it is powerful. Like, I cut this thing regularly, <laughs> and it just returns to the steak naturally. I don't get hair anywhere else. I don't get any kind of beard. It's just this. It, it is truly powerful. That is the best place to, to have a beard, though, to be fair. It, it kind of is, yeah. I got to say, I, I, I got, I, like, like, on various, like, YouTube videos or, like, chats I've had with people, I've heard, I've heard the pirate look, I've heard Don Quixote, I've heard, I've got a few good nicknames out of it. <laughs> it's, it's very Jack Sparrow. <laughs> it is. It is, like, that's the, that's the like, 0.5% Portuguese genes in me speaking. Nice. I like, I like part Irish, part Portuguese, and... The Portuguese gives me a beard and a tan like incredible in summer and the Irish gives me a sailor's mouth. So <laughs> Amazing. Welcome back to the Machine Learning Street Talk YouTube channel with me, Tim Scarf, my two compadres, Alex Bayesian Stenlake and Yannick Lightspeed Kilcher, who will be joining us in a minute. And today we have an incredibly special guest, Connor Leahy. I've been watching several of Connor's talks online on, on YouTube, and he's a really impressive guy, actually. I think he's got a fantastic future ahead of him. He's a walking encyclopedia of AGI and AI alignment knowledge. So he's interested in artificial general intelligence beyond deep learning, and even more so the alignment problem in AI. So how do you build a friendly AI? 
What stops you is not that you don't have enough computing power. Even with infinite compute and memory, you just can't write the correct Python program, which is going to lead to a friendly AI. Now, um, Connor founded Luther AI, which is a grassroots AI research group aimed at democratizing and open sourcing AI research. In that group, he's building new data sets for language modeling. He's building a new GPT style model as well. And the largest model that they've gotten to train for a single step so far has been 100 billion parameters, which is pretty impressive. They said on their site that Google reportedly got up to 50% utilization on their TPUs when they train similar models and they're making a lot of progress towards that goal. They haven't quite got there yet. They're also interested in digital trust for deep neural networks. So given query access to a model, can you determine whether the model was created by us? in a way which is resilient to model compression. So that's super interesting. Also, can an organization that is untrusted by the public in some way prove that their models are working as advertised? And this might lead us on to an interesting discussion later about the understandability of models. And one of the articles that's linked to me was by Chris Ola. And interestingly, he believes that it's possible to completely understand models, albeit uh, if you turn it into a huge amount of computer code. Connor's been a research um, engineer at Aleph Alpha for just over a year, and he's finishing his computer science degree at the Technical University of Munich. He was an organizer at several data science events, the Kaggle Munich and the PyData Munich. And Connor believes that AI is the mass production of intelligence. He believes that AI alignment is philosophy with a deadline and that we are on the precipice. The stakes are astronomical. AI is important and it will go wrong by default. Public figures such as Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk and Sam Harris, they believe that there's going to be an intelligence explosion and we need to be super worried about artificial general intelligence. Personally, I, I don't agree with them and I think a lot of people in the machine learning community are skeptical, but this is genuinely quite a divisive issue which we're going to talk about today. Connor thinks that the singularity or the intelligence explosion is very near. He also says that AGI is a bit like climate change, but worse even harder problems, even shorter deadlines, and even worse consequences for the future. So these problems are incredibly hard, and nobody really knows what to do about them. Connor, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. What an intro. Thank you so much for having me. AI safety, AI alignment debate. It's really interesting to see that there's all these various flavors and schools and approaches. Walk us through like why there are so many approaches to AI safety and how they differ. Do they differ in substance or is it mainly in like how we actually implement safe AI? All right. The field of AI alignment has a little bit of a color for history. So it's actually very interesting for those people that are specifically interested in a little bit of the history and the anthropology of this field. I very much recommend the book, The AI Doesn't Hate You by Tom Chivers, if I remember correctly. It comes, so some of the first people to talk about AI alignment are a bit of a unusual bunch of people. So they came out of these transhumanist newsletters in the late 90s and early 2000s. These are people such as Eliezer Yudkowsky, Nick Bostrom, and several others. In many ways, people, I think it's fair to consider that uh, Eliezer Yudkowsky is one of the great founders of the field. Of course, we have IJ Good and other people that are much earlier, even still in the field, Elianic. Who, are even, or who appeared even earlier talking about the concept of intelligence explosions or whatever. But at least for me personally, the way I got into the field is from the writings of Eliezer Yudkowsky. 
who was a very early writer in this field. And he was he was one of the first people to kind of talk about many of these concepts of how this will go bad by default. This is not a, an easy problem. He invents a lot of the terms that we use nowadays. So there's a strand. So Elias Zhukovsky runs this organization, you said, MIRI, the Machine Intelligence Research Institute. That is the institute that he leads, uh, or he's a lead researcher. I don't know exactly what his role is, but he founded it. There are also several other of these older institutions, such as the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford. And this has always been a very niche subject. This has been something you couldn't like study in necessarily publicly. Like I remember reading an interview with Paul Christiana, who is a prolific AI alignment researcher, and he telling him about that he had to have like a a secret double life during his PhD is that he wanted to work on the lie alignment, but he had to pretend he was working on something different. And that has been changing. So due to the, the works of people such as Max Techmark and Nick Bostrom and others, Stuart Russell, there has been a lot of progress in making AI alignment a more quote-unquote respectable field, something that more people can work on full-time in their PhD, something you can get funding for, something you can publish about. This is a very recent development. This is something uh, maybe since like 2018, I would consider to be something that's been becoming something more mainstream something that it's more okay to talk about. So it's actually surprising how quickly things have changed. But this has also had, to some degree, a, a, a little bit of side effect that some new approaches, or some people new to the field not necessarily know the older approaches to the field, or the older, more, let's say, radical views of the field. The way I like to think about this is that you can divide the field into several kinds of approaches of like how hard do you think the problem is how soon do you think the problem is going to happen how dramatic of a of an of a breakthrough do we need to solve this on the one hand we have prosaic ai alignment this is stuff like paul cristiano's group at OpenAI, stuart russell at chai and several others this is what i would consider quote-unquote mainstream um ai alignment research this is the idea that our future Artificial super intelligence are probably going to resemble our current artificial intelligences. They're probably going to be neural networks. They're probably going to be, you know, running on GPUs. They're probably going to be using, uh, you know, gradient descent. And therefore, these people ask themselves, okay, given this, how how can we align these? How can we make a GPT model aligned? What does it mean to be aligned and such like this? What techniques can we do? This is what I would consider probably the most mainstream kind of current uh, alignment. Then there's the stuff. So it's ironic is that Miri was one of the very first organizations to talk about alignment. And now they're considered something of a black sheep in the community is that Miri is legendarily hard to explain even what they do. And no, and like even people in the AI alignment field are often have different opinions about whether what Myriad is doing makes sense or not, or is, or, you know. So uh, to do my best to try to, to, to say shortly what Miri does is that they say, we are so confused about what intelligence is, about what alignment means, about goals, about optimism, about all these things that we should sit down first and try to figure out what these words even mean. We should, th their idea is basically, we are in the pre-Newtonian stage of intelligence research, is that before Newton invented his laws of motion, we were able to build ships and catapults and something, kind of a trial and error, and they could work pretty decently. But once we had Newton's theories, we could make predictions. We could predict how to how to make these certain things. And it, it was necessary to build very complex machines. You can't build a rocket that gets you to the moon by trial and error. You could, but 
not really going to work in practice. You needed these predictive theories in order to be able to aim for the moon. You needed to be able to predict how gravity would behave in this scenario that we have not yet seen. And MIRI is basically trying to develop this for intelligence. They're trying to develop fundamental theory, understanding of what is intelligence, what are optimization processes, and how can we reason about like decision theory? How can we reason about this in a way that will apply to potentially future superintelligent systems? Could you articulate what they believe intelligence is. I mean, on, on this show, we've covered Francois Chalet's on the measure of intelligence. And last week, we spoke to a guy called Walid Sabo, who's one of these old school expert system uh, guys. And he thinks that intelligence is about explicitly reasoning over separate knowledge and, and doing statistical inferencing and so on. So what is the conception of intelligence in your opinion? I take a very practical approach. I say intelligence is the ability to solve problems. Is you can get all philosophical about it and you can get try to get like that mathematical about it. But I like, for example, that Miri often doesn't talk about intelligence. They often talk about optimization processes and optimization pressure. So the the I could measure the power of a system by its ability to, if introduced to a system, to increase a certain value or decrease a certain value. And But don't you think that skill acquisition should be part of intelligence? Could be. In, in practice, it would be. You know, in every practical kind of scenario, it would be. There is the philosophy, like we could talk about definitions of intelligence that are like philosophically satisfying, and we could talk about definitions of intelligence that are practically useful. And the fact, at the end of the day, if I have a system that can take over the world economy, can cure aging, cure cancer, build any kind of technology, it's, at least for me, it's not super important how exactly this machine works. Because I suppose one, one, one way to contrast this is that, in a way, it's a cul-de-sac for us to get bogged down in defining intelligence and debating whether or not current systems are intelligent. Because Stuart Russell said, the primary concern is not spooky emergent consciousness, but simply the ability to make high quality decisions. And in that wonderful YouTube video that you linked to us, which is, I don't know if I can pronounce his name, you said before, uh, Elysia Zudowski the AI alignment problem. And he, he was basically saying it is really hard. And he started off by talking about Asimov's three laws of robotics, which were deontological. And for, for folks that are not educated in philosophy, that means that rather than focusing on the outcome, it's just a kind of rules-based system of ethics. But his rules were a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. And then the second rule was a robot must obey the orders given by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. And the third one was a robot must protect its own existence, um, as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Yes, and that would not work in practice, as that talk <laughs> explains in rather detail. An interesting point from that talk was discussing the idea of utility functions and how they're necessary to get around the kind of uh, deontological traps that come out from vaguely worded first principles. And it was really interesting because they talk about the importance of having a coherent utility function. And there are links here to Dutch book arguments in terms of like probability theory. But on the show recently, we've been discussing a lot the problem of setting objectives and targets and the way that these can lead to perverse examples. And in the talk, the speaker quite, quite rightly identifies that humans don't really have coherent utility functions, not in any sense that we're aware of. And yet they seem to be a real central principle for this, the AI alignment problem. Is, is there a tension there or are we... 
but yeah. is, is this just an outsider looking in that that's, thinks this is uh, a bit of a conundrum? No, absolutely. Can we, can we give an example of what we mean by humans don't have a coherent utility function? It's pretty simple to get humans to say, for example, they like pineapple pizza better than salami pizza, and they like uh, cheese pizza better than salami pizza, and they like pineapple pizza better than cheese pizza. So it's pretty easy to get humans to say statements like that. And if you think about it, so I, I should explain quickly what a Dutch book is. So Dutch book is actually a very important concept in like these weary style alignment research. So there's a very hard question to be asked, what is rationality? Actually, can I diverge for just a second here? I'd like to introduce a, a bit of a, a, a weird thought experiment that I think is important to explain this. This is, called Newcom this is called Newcomb's Paradox. And I think this is very important to understanding some of the more advanced decision theory we, we might be talking about. So Newcomb's Paradox functions the following way. Imagine a super aliened Omega comes down from space. And so Omega is, is arbitrarily intelligent. And that Omega is arbitrarily intelligent. Omega is a weird alien, so it's playing a weird little game. It plays the following game. It puts down two boxes in front of you. The first box always has $1,000 in it. The second box has a million dollars in it, but only if it predicted in its simulation that you would only take the second box. So it puts down two boxes and it flies away. Should you take only the second box or both boxes? This is an interesting idea because the boxes are already filled. The million dollars are already there or not. So whether or not you take it does not change whether the million dollars are already in the box. But you might argue that, and I think correctly argue, so I'm a one boxer. That's what you call it, one boxer. I would only take the second box and because then I would predict, because Omega is super smart. So Omega knows that I would have only taken two, the second box, so I'll get a million dollars. But there are many kinds of decision theories that say, logic, rationally, you should pick both boxes because your choice won't actually make a difference at this point. So these are like different definitions of rationality. On the one hand, you have this like this like a causal rationality or a causal decision theory where you say, my choosing of both boxes will not causally affect my output. I will get $1,000 more by picking both boxes either way. If it's strictly dominant, so I'll take two boxes. And then there is these like more abstract kind of like weird system theory where you said but i get more money by only picking one box so i'll just pick it whether it makes causal sense or not and it's, it's now a good time to interview daniel kahneman won some was it the nobel prize for his he showed that humans do not maximize economic utility so there was the yes. experiment maybe you can probably verbalize it better than me but people were more concerned about not being almost insulted Loss by the version. other person yes yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah isn't too. this isn't this just a a I feel a lot of the Kahneman experiments are just that we might not have the best notion of utility function yet, given yeah. because we try to measure it in money or something like this, or like the more pizza, the better. But it, I think a lot of Kahneman's experiments still make sense if you assign the correct utility function, if you assign some negative utility to risk and to being embarrassed and, and whatnot. Whereas I feel the a lot of these advanced decision problems, they really require a different thinking like rather than we have this monotonic utility function i also know there is there's this notion of uh, i don't remember it's a long time ago but like super rationality where oh you, you you have you like play, play prisoner's dilemma but then you are think like okay the other person is really smart and i'm really smart and the other person knows that i'm really smart and i know that the other person is really smart and therefore if we're both so smart why don't we just pick both the same action like the cooperate action and it makes 
to me, this makes no sense. Like at the point where you say, since we are so smart, why don't we? But I, I see like you can derive this, but yeah, it makes no sense. And it, I feel like this, also this box example, doesn't that kind of go almost into the nature of whether or not we are a deterministic machine? Because the, whatever the omega, the superintelligence predicts what you would do if you're a deterministic machine, then your causal reasoning makes sense. But if you are not, then you should sample from a biased coin. Okay, I have to unpack some, a few things there. You're completely correct in what you're saying. I completely agree. Is that so like this concept that you could... So the thing with utility theory and with utility functions is utility functions are an incredibly huge space of possible functions. You can always find some utility function that explains someone's behavior. Always. It's just such a large space. You, so that's why these concepts of rationality are very hard. That's why I was going to talk about Dutch booking is that if you see someone walk down the street, take out a gun and shoot themselves, you're not, you can't say that's irrational because maybe their utility function gave maximum utility for shooting themselves. And that was the exact best possible thing they could have done. It's hard to say, or you might, or there's a second part of this. So a, 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 Agent is basically composed of two parts. You have the utility function of the decision theory is that it might just have a such a bad decision theory, such a bad rationality. That actually shooting himself was a really bad decision, but he was so dumb that he did it anyways because he was his rationality was so bad that he yeah. made that. I know we are accelerating towards the, the free will debate very quickly because the third thing is maybe the person didn't have any rationality at all. Maybe he was just acting randomly. Yes, of course. So there are... So this is why I want to, so I'm going to get back to Dutch booking because Dutch booking helps us solve some of these problems. But basically, uh, okay, like the super rationality things, let's talk about that later. If you want to talk about it later, we can talk about it later. But here's the thing with Omega. So here's the thing with the Newcomb's paradox. Newcomb's paradox, in my opinion, appears super strange. Like it appears like this very bizarre scenario that requires like this really weird setups and blah, blah, blah. And for some of these thought experiments, that is true. Like I know several thought experiments that are really funny but honestly require like physically impossible things to happen for them to occur. But I'm going to make the argument that Newcomb's paradox is the default in human interactions. I think we all of us encounter Newcomb's paradoxes all the time in, in one very simple scenario, social interactions. If I, every time I'm talking to you, I am making predictions about what you will predict I will do, about what you will predict I will behave, how I will, what is socially acceptable. This is a Newcomb's, uh, a Newcomb's game. And that if I, whether or not, for example, I decide to lie to someone will depend on whether I expect them to expect that I will lie to them or not. And but, but just on that, though, isn't there a kind of Nash uh, equilibrium or a convergent behavior that happens here? Because it happens all the time that when we try and derive, we, we design objectives to nudge people to behave the way we want them to. It might be kids at school. We want them to, to do their exams and so on. And we try and, and design objectives that are so powerful. Like, for example, if you can memorize a long list of numbers, that's probably a good indicator if we evaluate for it that you're good at doing something else. But so many opportunities for perverse incentives and shortcuts always manifest. Yes, absolutely. It's okay. This game, this is a, not exactly about rationality at that point. Uh, so incentives are important because basically incentives help us shape what actions lead to our highest utility. This is a really interesting thing. When I first got into AI alignment research, I was really, I, I was confused that everyone was really into economics. Like every 
AI alignment researchers really into economics. And I didn't understand that at all, but eventually I found, I figured it out is that economics is the same problem as AI alignment. Economics is the question about aligning incentives to is using dumb quote unquote things, individual humans, laws, institutions to control a smart thing. The economy is a very smart optimizing agent. It can optimize very complex parameters in a very wide range scenario that individual humans cannot do. In many ways, the economy, like our, our kind of like free market economy is in many ways like a kind of distributed backpropagation algorithm run on humans. And in many ways, economics is about trying to align that thing as close as possible to it. So I think, for example, corporations have figured out if they just dump their to toxic waste into some kind of like into the Amazon or whatever, that'll make them a lot of profit. But that's a misalignment. That's not what we actually want the economy to do. So then we pass laws that say, OK, it's illegal. You have to pay more money if you do that. And that is an attempt to align the economic, you know, the economy, AI system, optimizing system to our values post hoc. Could, could I um, challenge here then? Because Adam Smith said that there was a hidden hand in the market. And do you think that the market is a... I know Cholet actually believes that it's an externalized form of intelligence. Do you think the same? I I think it's... Again, it's a, I like to think about optimizers more than I think about like intelligence is a loaded word. So I try to think about optimizers here is that the economy is optimizing for certain parameters. And the question is, are those parameters we want or not? So is there an invisible hand? Sure. Does the invisible hand give us what we want? That is not obvious to me. It is, it will optimize for something. And the point for me of like regulation is attempting to force the invisible hand to optimize for something closer to what we actually want. So coming back to social interactions for a second, you made the point that this Newcomb's paradox is every day in social interactions is there. But in isn't a big factor in the social interaction that it's a, a repeated game? So I am not going to lie to someone or something like this because I interact with them in the future or I behave as they expect, because I'm going to interact with them again. Whereas in your case, in Newcomb's Paradox, the alien just flies away and I, I will never interact with them again. Of course, that is, that is a good point. Is that I'm, not every social interaction is only a Newcomb's Paradox. The iterative mm. Prisoner's Dilemma is probably the closer, or a stack hunt, or probably the closer <coughs> game theoretical equivalence to normal interactions. But my point, so I, I got off track there, I'm sorry about that, mm. is that what I, I was bringing up Newcomb's Paradox to explain Dutch booking and mm. why it's important for rationality. Just for the benefit of the listeners, can you explain the prisoner's dilemma? That's the thing where yes. the people can dob each other in, but they... Yeah. So the idea is you and your buddy are... are can, there's evidence that you may have committed a crime, but it's not enough to convict you. So you're both put into a cell. You can't talk to each other. And, you have the, and the police offers you the following option. Either you both don't tell us, and then we're going to convict you for some minor crimes. So you go to, a year for, to prison for one year. Or you rat on your buddy. If he doesn't rat on you, you go free and he goes to jail for six years. Or if you both rat on each other, you both go to years to prison for four years. So obviously, in some, the best thing would be for both people to interact, to, to, to cooperate with each other, to not tell the police what happened. But for each one individually, it is better to rat out the other person. Because if you rat me out, I might as well rat you out and I'll you know, save myself two years of prison. If you didn't rat me out and I rat you out, I'm going to save myself one year of prison as well. So it's always in my interest to rat out the other person. 
Yeah, and this is spoken about a lot in reinforcement learning, especially multi-agent reinforcement learning. And there are lots of efforts to model intrinsic motivation. I mean, Yannick can talk about this much better than myself, but you must see this quite a lot that when you have individual agents. Yes, absolutely. It's like the prisoner's dilemma is one of the, if I had to like make a list of like top 10 things you have to learn period, like just things that people should be aware about. Prisoner's Dilemma teaches so much about everything, about how people interact, about how governments interact, about how decisions are made. It's and variants of the prison's dilemma. So there's very there's there's variants. The most important one is the iterative prison's dilemma. So assuming we don't play this once, but we play it multiple times, then it might be good to cooperate with you so that we so we cooperate many times in the future. This is also, for example, why the mafia kills snitches is that they try to say, okay, if you don't cooperate with us, we're gonna make it so bad for you that it's not worth it. So there, there, this is definitely something in real life and it's in a fundamental thing about understanding like rational decision-making. On a semi-tangent, if you go back to the, the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, when this stuff first got really big academically, around the same time, uh, nuclear strategy was first emerging and you get a lot of game theory in there. And there is some very dark but very interesting reading um, looking at the applications of game theory to the waging and prevention of nuclear war shapes a lot of how the world is today. It's funny you say that because I was going to invoke, I know we said we won't talk about politics and I promise this will be a quick digression, but I am Rand. And of course she wrote this book, um, Atlas Shrugged, and her writing influenced basically, I think there was even a Rand corporation and it influenced the second half of the 20th century. There was this objective obsession and most of the way that businesses are run today is informed by that. Even as you said, things like uh, mutually assured destruction and the Randian philosophy is present in a lot of places. And it means that if agents only focus on their self-interest, that would actually maximize um, global utility, I think, if I'm stating that correctly. What do you think about that? Are we sure that Ayn Rand is philosophy? I'm pretty sure it's pornography. <laughs> <laughs> it's called objectivism, isn't it? So it's got a, an official name. So I, I, I have very, I have, I don't think much of Ayn Rand at all. I think that, let me put it this way. I think there are better examples of what she was trying to accomplish. So for example, Tyre Cohen's book, Suburb Attachments, I think is a much better case for the same type of argument. He makes this case about how increasing world GDP is basically the most morally good thing you can do. And I think his case is much stronger than anyone Ayn Rand ever did. So it's, it's the following thing. So the problem with like deontological and, and the problem I have with like deontological theories and like non-utilitarian theories is that you can always construct a world state where following those rules is bad. You can always find some edge case, which might be very edgy, or it might be a very actually how the world works case. For example, I, like, I, I don't know if you ever heard of neo-reactionism. It's like monarchists. They think we should have a king and people, slaves are good. And it's hilarious. It's terrible. And the thing is that a lot of people take them strangely seriously because their arguments seem to make sense if you accept the premises. But the problem is the premises are just wrong. They're just not true. It's just, they're just actually for real made up. They're just fantasy la land stuff. And a lot of objectivism is similar. Is that it seems to me is that she just, if you accept the premises of Atlas Shrugged, if you accept all of this is how the world works, this is how humans actually behave, this is how actually, and yeah, it's, yeah, it's good. Problem is none of those things seem to be true in the real world. The real world does not seem to follow these laws. And therefore it's uh, very silly to, in my opinion, to take them too seriously. It's, uh, morality is a two-tier system. It's not that you can, 
you can't just sit down and come up with a true correct morality that will read to the best possible result without actually observing the state the universe is in and the rules the universe follows. Just to throw a hand grenade into the discussion, I was really fascinating. Like this, these sorts of podcasts are a great way to get into a new topic that you don't often have a chance to read. And so I went out and started reading some of these papers in AI alignment research, very heavy, heavily logical. Like we're very used to looking at calculus, but like pure logic, just arguments made of pure logic are something that you don't really encounter outside of textbooks. But I kept wondering to myself, if this whole field is this construct of pure logic, yeah, sure, our conclusions may be valid given the premises, but what about the premises? Like, uh, I'm not familiar enough with the entire debate to go back and say this particular premise is wrong, but we, we seem to have, well, all of the AI alignment research seems to agree on certain broad principles, things like the orthogonality thesis, things like instrumental convergence. But how much of this is someone said this once, now we all accept it's gospel, because if you accept this, then it, it naturally follows in a logical state. Sorry, just one second. So when, whenever we have jargon, I'm going to intercept. So the orthogonality thesis is, uh, I, I think it came from Bostrom, and he had this concept that utility functions and general intelligence can vary independently of each other. So the idea is that we can have something that's super intelligent, but will want to kill us or is dumb in, in the sense of what it's optimizing. Is that fair? Yeah, basically. Okay. And the other thing you said... Instrumental convergence. There are certain sub-goals which are useful for a very large range of final goals. For example, almost doesn't matter what I want to accomplish, I need to be alive to accomplish it in almost all cases. So most AIs following most goals will want to stay alive. This has nothing to do with like consciousness or will to live or emotions or anything. It's just if I want to get coffee... If I just want to get you coffee, I can't get you coffee because I'm dead. So I have to ensure that I stay alive long enough to get you coffee. Counterexample, a friend of mine was training a robot to walk, set the time penalty too high, and this robot would just tip itself over. And they couldn't figure out why it was tipping itself over before they figured out that the robot had learned that the quickest way to terminate an instance and therefore minimize its regret was to knock itself over. So yeah. in, in such a situation, like... This isn't to say that the theory is bunk. It's just to say that there are real-world counterexamples that suggest that instrumental convergence may not be as powerful as user input or initial conditions. That's not a counterexample. That's actually a very classical example of the uh, stop button problem. So there's this unsolved problem, basically, is how do you get an AI to willingly let you shut it down? That's actually very hard. Is that if you don't give it any incentive to let shut it down, it will resist being shut down. If you give it too much incentive to shut itself down, it'll shut itself down. And so it's so this is a very common problem. Now might be a good time just to quickly touch on some of that stuff because in that presentation by Elisa Eliezer Yudkowsky. Thank you very much. He started off by um, talking about, we started off with those Asimov deontological rules. And then he, he framed that the alignment problem is incredibly difficult because if you have a robot's utility function, it's brittle. It might be something like this. So we want to fill a cauldron with boiling water, I think was the um, thought experiment. And the utility function is one if it's full and zero if it's empty. The human's utility function presumably is... It's, it's so much more complex. It has a fidelity that can't actually be explicitly described. 
Yes. But, but here in, in this case, the, here's what I'm always thinking when someone comes up with this. It's that I look at this and I see two things. I see someone making these premise of we have this super duper booper intelligent AI, right? That is like unconstrained and whatever utility function we give it, it can optimize. And then we think of the consequences. But then I look at the utility function and I see a 2000 and year 2020 programmer that programs a utility function as if it were a reinforcement learning agent of today. So it, it always pairs these mega intelligent AIs with a utility function that is like we would give an AI today because it's easy states that map to single numbers. What if the utility function is what, like plus one if human dopamine system activated? And yeah. then you'd be like, okay, workshop flooded. Nah, that's not good. Dopamine low, dopamine low. Funny, good, okay, dopamine okay. high. Okay, okay. But I see what you're saying here. But I, I, so we've been building up technical debt here in this conversation. There's 10 things that I have to explain that I, <laughs> we've just been like adding on without explaining the previous. That's our mission here. Yeah. Yes. Is, is, okay. is, is it a LIFO stack? <laughs> yeah, basically. So we have to work off some of the technical debt here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So first of all, I would like to be very clear that every single thing that has been brought up so far is very well known in the AI atmosphere. Everyone talks about this. Everyone is concerned with these problems. You can find huge essays on the alignment forum about every single one of these topics. These are, these are not something that, like, you're right. Like, I'm not saying you're, you're, you're dumb or something. I'm saying, you're, yes, you're very right. These are smart. These are good things that you are noticing. It's good that you're noticing these things because these are serious problems. Because my brain doesn't actually have a, a you know stack that is in any way consistent, I don't remember everything I have to work off my technical debt, but let me try to like look a little bit backwards first. So I want to start with this idea. So the there is a failure mode in talking about AI alignment, which we are dangerously close to, where it becomes an argument of my sci-fi theory versus your sci-fi debunk. Is that the, it can often come into like this thing is I say, the AI could you know, take over the world. And the other person says, how would it take over the world? It's like, maybe it'll invent this technology. But that technology seems unlikely to invented it. It could do this instead. But what if it does this instead? And that doesn't get us anywhere. I, I, I want to like short circuit this and instead say, the, what most advanced people in this field will try to tell you is that if you're, is that j just about from first principles, if you're dealing with an entity that by definition is much more intelligent than you, you shouldn't try to predict what it will do. You should just predict that it will perform better than you. For example, I can't predict which move AlphaGo will take, but I can predict that AlphaGo will probably win. And that is the only thing I am. I think we could say about very strong future intelligence. I can predict that I can't predict how a future intelligence might want to take over the world, but I can predict that it probably will be able to do so if it if its utility function wanted to do so now to so, get the a quick challenge on that isn't that a little bit one-dimensional in, in the sense that go is a board game and what it means to win is clearly defined whereas if it was an adversarial interaction between me and an embodied ai i don't think i it doesn't really make sense to say this ai wants to win what does that even mean it, that's where we get into these Dutch booking and, and utility function things is that is we're still working from this assumption that and our, our intelligence has some kind of utility function. And the reason this makes sense to a certain degree is because utility functions are universal. Is that you have these like von neumann merkenstein axioms where you can basically say, even if no one sits down and writes a utility function, you can describe an, an agent fulfilling these very simple rationality priors 
as acting as if it had a utility function. So that means even so no programmer ever wrote down a utility function, it will still act as if it had a utility function. This is, this is why people use these theories is because it's very universal. There are problems with utility functions. And one of the biggest open questions in AI alignment is, can we find a better framing than utility functions? Because utility functions have a lot of problems that we would like to get away from. But so far, it's been very hard to find a better formalism than utility functions for thinking about these very abstract, very powerful things. So AI alignment and AI safety and AI danger are based on this like stack of arguments. And this is why I understand that sometimes these arguments are hard for people to swallow because often people will see one or two of these arguments and then, and then they can easily dismiss them. You, you have to take the whole stack. You have to say, you have to say, okay, argument number one, intelligence is going to be very powerful. Argument number two, the instrumental convergence happens. Argument number three, defining correct function, utility functions is very hard. Argument number four, the by uh, defining human values is extremely high entropy. It's extremely high information. It's extremely hard or well, extremely low entropy. It's of all possible value functions. The value functions that capture human values are an extremely small subset. So we should expect that by default, unless we have enough you know, knowledge to hit this very small target in optimization space, that we will hit something wildly different. And that we should expect that these wildly different thing will do something that we might not be able to predict, but that we'll, we could predict will not be something that we necessarily want. And so, so it is this like weird stack of arguments that all interact with each other. And if you take out one of them, then the conclusion doesn't really hold anymore or it's not as strong. And I mean, you can just, just quickly another question. So, because you said the space of human utility functions is almost infinitesimally small compared to the space of utility functions, but if you were to take a convex hull over all of the different individual human utility functions, would it look quite clustered in that space, or would it be uniformly distributed? This really depends on what space we're talking about here. The space of all functions, because a utility function, any computable function, and that is a large space. Yeah, it, it is. I suppose what I'm saying is that presumably they're more, my utility function and Yannick's utility function, presumably they're significantly more similar to each other than any other uh, utility yeah. function picked at random from that space. Yes. I'm trying Robert to reason Miles. about what we're looking for here. Robert Miles said something on this uh, a couple of years back, talking about the nature of intelligence. And he says, okay, think about all the kinds of human intelligence. They're an area this big. Oh, hang on, there's the camera. They're an area this big. And if we think about all the potential intelligences of living things on Earth, it's like this big. And if we think about any potential biological intelligence, it's like this big. But that's still not the entire space of intelligence. It's huge and we don't even know what it looks like. Utility functions are exactly the same. Yes, if we're talking about human human intelligence, it makes sense to reason about like convex hulls within this like sub subspace, because even if we're wrong, we're only going to be a little bit wrong. But if we're talking about something that's non-human and acts in a way that could be construed as intelligent, then the question becomes a lot more complex. And so could I also posit, just quickly, the utility function presumably changes all the time. It's not static. Or do, or do you think it has a level of dynamism well, so that you could think I, of it as being static, but it changes? It static, right? You yeah. can probably formulate and take a time parameter in or whatnot. But, but here is a, a thing, and then I, I also want to backtrack the stack, but here is a thing that I'm very sure the first person confronted with this came up with, but the answer might be interesting. Presumably, we're going to build this super intelligent whatnot, uh, and it's going to be intelligent. And on the way there, it might be 
intelligent enough that we still can make control of it. What if we use that to build us the utility function that is aligned with us? Yeah. So actually, what I can say is for sure it's intelligent and therefore it's probably going to come up with a, the best utility function. This is for very strong definitions of the world best and, and intelligent and whatever. But actually, in many fields of AI and many people in AI alignment actually do think versions of this. They actually do believe, I believe a version of this is that in a way we have to build, we have to use the intelligence of stronger agents to make them align themselves in many ways. This is, for example, the idea behind what's called corrigibility. The idea is to build an agent that always wishes to be more aligned. So even if it starts out unaligned, it will use its own intelligence to try to make itself more aligned. Like this is one of the uh, more popular approaches towards actual alignment. That doesn't well, what Yannick said, it links back to the orthogonality thesis, because why wouldn't a really intelligent agent change its utility function given it's super intelligent. Okay, now we're going to get into some deep decision theory bullshit. So there is, making decision theories robust under this kind of things is an open mathematical problem. So like, for example, imagine I offer you a pill. If you take this pill, you're going to want to kill your entire family and you're going to be super happy about it all the time. Should, would you take the pill or not? From a pure utilitarian perspective, whether you take it or not doesn't really matter. If you don't take it, you're happy that you didn't kill your family. If you take it and you kill your family, you're super happy that you kill your family. So in a way, from a pure, like dumb decision theoretical perspective, these actions are, have the same utility and it doesn't matter which one you pick. But from our perspective, like that doesn't seem correct. Like there, there's something wrong here. Like that, there, we should have a decision theory that robustly does not take the pill. This is especially becomes a problem with what's called wireheading. So wireheading is a problem is that if a, a reinforcement learning agent takes control of their own reward signal, why would they not just set it to infinity and never do anything again? And so this can, it does happen. And it's extremely non-obvious to me, as a lot of people think about this, how to solve this problem, or if this is a solvable problem. I've heard people propose solutions to it or ideas about how to address it or whatever, but this is a, it's a very thorny issue. So I think what you've described there is Gandhi's stability argument. And I was going to ask you, what does stability mean? But I think you've just answered the question by there's a kind of convergent behavior in many of these decision frameworks, and sometimes they don't converge. The Gandhi example was he starts out not wanting to murder people, and then we offer him a pill that will make him murder people, but he knows what the pill does. So he says, no, sorry, guys, I'm not having that pill because I don't want to murder people. Yeah, this is also this. So this is in many ways robust. What's called robust delegation, is which is a sub part of the alignment problem. It's the question: How is that not just? So there's a different parts of delegation. There's we delegate to an AI. There's AI delegates to a copy of itself. There's AI delegates to a new AI. The AI delegates to an improved version of itself, and also like delegates to a future version of itself. In many ways, I don't know if you guys have ever done this before, but sometimes I will not buy sweets at the supermarket because I know I'm going to eat them if I'm at home. In many ways, this is an alignment failure. I have I am I am not aligned with my future self, with my, my previous self. So I like have to create like these artificial scenarios to stop future self from doing something that I don't want him to do. You even see this in practice when they hook up rats to electrodes that can just stimulate their brain. They'll just push them indefinitely so at some point we might i think the one of the more and that that would be 
what you mentioned at the very beginning, where you say AI in the near future is probably going to look like we engineer neural networks, we optimize with backpropagation. That might just be solved with engineering constraints. Like we just screw over the AI's attempt to do that by itself. But it's, yeah, it's an interesting problem. It refers back to what we have on the stack a bit, which is this, this stop button issue. Isn't that kind of a version of the same thing? So what can you tell us a bit more about the stop button problem and how that plays into this? Yeah, a very common thing that people will say, it will suggest when they first hear about, ah, great, you've got it here, is that, well, if the AI does something better, we'll just shut it off. I think this is a very silly idea for multiple reason. So here's a great example that uh, Tim has got here from the talk where, let's say we have like, a utility function for the robot. We give it one point if the cauldron is full and the turn off button is off. And but we also give him the button. We also give him w one reward if he suspends himself after he press the button. So what will this robot do? Well, it's going to immediately hit the button because filling the cauldron is hard, but suspending is easy. So we'll just hit the button and go unconscious, and then it gets one reward. So success. And it's very hard to find a mathematically rigorous way of how to define an off button in a way where an agent will actually honor our our wishes in a good way. And Okay, so here's I'm gonna I'm gonna take a step away from like moder from like uh, mainstream. I research and talk about my own beliefs a little bit. Is that I actually think that's not something we want. I actually think that we should not want a robot that will do anything we say, because I think humans love a lot of very bad things. And I think if we have a robot that will not that will not do a very bad thing, that is preferable. I would prefer that if I told my robot go murder innocent children, the robot says no, I'm not gonna do that. But that is not, but that goes against this kind of like alignment with following human wishes directly. And Doesn't that lead very quickly to a trolley problem? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> would, you, would you make the same argument about, let's say, guns? If I could build a gun that whenever you point it at a child, would just not fire? It's more complicated than that. It's because so, so first of all, it depends if the gun is sentient or not, or is has an intelligent or an optimization. Is your gun optimizing for damage? I'm a very practical utilitarian. Let me be very clear about this. I want people to be happy. I want suffering to be minimized by whatever means possible. I do not give a single shit how we achieve a better world. I just care about us achieving a better world. If having guns around makes the world a better place, I want us to have guns. If having not having guns around makes us a better world, I want us to not have guns laying around. It's uh, very practical in that sense. What, what about and another, because we, we've got Kenneth Stanley coming on the show, and he, he has this wonderful book called Greatness Can't Be Planned, talking all about the, the worship of objectives being a tyranny. But one interesting concept I've really taken from his book is that he says that we, we, when we op optimize objectives, we're looking for this monotonic increase in, in utility. And actually, a lot of times, things have to go significantly worse before they get better. For example, if we took away guns suddenly, you might find that led to some unexpected outcome. But in 10 or 15 years, it might provide a, a better society for us. So we need to prepare ourselves to take that dip before it gets better later. Yeah, absolutely. This is just the difficulty of the space we're searching through. If is that the the space of actions we can take and their output in the form of world states that we can take if we can try to formalize this somehow, not really. 
is that there's a fundamental question of like how much structure is in this space. We have no free lunch in that in a truly random space, you can never do better than random search. You know, there's no possible way. But we all assume and are living proof that there is structure to our universe. There are regularities that we can exploit to produce better than random outputs. It's not always monotonic. It's not always perfect. We get, we get stuck in local, local optimum minima and whatever. But all of these are basically properties of the space and properties of the space of the search algorithm we're using to search through that. Intelligence is a search algorithm in this space of policies, in this space of uh, choices that it can it can affect, of parameters it can influence in order to achieve better world states which are rated higher on its utility functions in the most maximally abstract way to define this. It's quite interesting because you're, you're talking about intelligence as an output. I think Cholet says that it's actually a, a process of information acquisition. So, but it's, it's really interesting that a lot of people do formalize it in the way that you do, which is that it's a search problem looking for a program. Yeah, I don't want to do any definition of intelligence. I genuinely do not want to commit it to any one definition of intelligence. I think there are many different de definitions of intelligence that are useful in different contexts. I, like, I find like the search of policy, this like meta-learning definition makes sense in this context. There's other contexts where others might be more sensical. But I, I think this is, again, I, I try to like, sometimes when we get like really into these abstract things, I try to like to ground things again, is that again, I don't care about how it works. I don't care about any of this. I care about making the world a better place. I care about making people happy. I care about avoiding suffering. I care about curing cancer. And everything else is just a tool in the tool set to achieve those goals. And yeah. yeah. In a weird way, you are exactly like the problematic instances of AGI we describe where they don't care how many, like how they construct paper clips as long <laughs> any means necessary. Right? In, in, a, in a way, you act exactly uh, like this, which is interesting. Actually, um, yeah, I'm yeah. just making sure that we have a pathological example to study. <laughs> exactly. No, but that's actually really funny. There's actually a great story to be told here about a Mesa optimization. So one of the one of the things that the AI alignment research has like been talking about a lot recently, which hasn't really filtered the mainstream, is this concept of Mesa optimization. The idea is assuming you are you're learning, you're searching for a a, a a policy to optimize a certain thing, it might be that the program that you find is itself an optimizer for something else. And this is called a Mesa optimization. And humans are a Mesa optimizer for evolution designed us looking for a function that maximizes inclusive fitness, but we optimize for completely different things for like happiness and stupid stuff like that. The evolution doesn't care at all. We are misaligned AI. This is why this is one of the reasons why I think that it is so obvious that AI is going to go along because we are misaligned AI. We are the AI that went out of control as well as not making paper clips. Instead of making babies, we're curing cancer and stuff like that. That is definitely not what the what uh, what evolution intended. Now might be a good time to, to talk about inner versus outer alignment, by the way. So I, I want to introduce this concept. The inner alignment problem is about aligning the model with the loss function, the thing you're training for. So we'll know about this in, in machine learning. So the reward function. Outer alignment is aligning that reward function, that loss function with the programmer's intentions, ensuring that uh, you write down a loss, your model is going to actually optimize for this. Now, I, I'm sure everyone has seen this, but there's this wonderful 
there's this wonderful open AI page talking about faulty reward functions in the wild. And in the reinforcement learning world, we talk a lot about reward shaping, which is this thing we were just saying that when you have objectives, intelligence systems will take shortcuts and they'll just do whatever they need to do to maximize that objective. And they don't even care about the thing that you actually want them to do. So this is an example of a game called Coast Runners, where the boat is going round and round in circles and it's just picking up points from these little gems in the water. And it's not even completing the the lap the way it's supposed to be. Yep, absolutely. And this is a very big problem. And this is a, in many ways, yeah, I love the framing of inner versus outer alignment. I wish, I hope that it becomes more mainstream. I think it's a great framing. Is that, so yeah, outer alignment is what we've all talked about. What is the correct utility function? How do we find a utility function that's good? Inner alignment is a space optimizer question. So if we run set, stochastic gradient descent on our loss function, does it actually even optimize it? Or will it find just something that looks like it's optimizing it, but actually optimizes something different? Yeah, I, I wanted to say something about the stop button problem to, to back. I'm, I'm trying to constantly backtrack a bit to also clean up the technical depth. Is that if you look in the practical world, if I think of of AI and really good AI, uh, I think most people think of something like a little computer that goes beep, 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 and we input and, and maybe that has an off button. But if I think of uh, AI, I think of something like Google, right? Like the search engine mail ecosystem that we've built up and that might have an off button or like 20, but we can't, like we simply can't. I, I think the, the whole off button debate, because if we end up building an AI like this, there's no way we shut off Google. The world goes down if we, should, if we shut off, maybe not. Okay, maybe at this stage, we can still shut off Google and we could survive, but it's, it's going to be horrible. And if we build something more intelligent, that's going to be more useful to us. And I, think, I don't think that the stop button debate, as you said, even makes sense. And it's not something we, it, first, it's not something we want, but second, it's not something that we even now can conceivably do. I agree with what Yannick said, because I believe that intelligence is externalized and Google, the corporation, is a form of externalized intelligence. And it's nebulous and diffuse and it's self-healing. If you attack Google, they have teams of lawyers that will respond to your attack. If you take down their servers, their um, scripts will fix the server and put it online again. It's already a, a kind of living, breathing system that you can't possibly stop. The cron yeah. job of death. <laughs> yeah, like there's a great little essay called <laughs> What Failure Looks Like by Paul Cristiano, which I find very interesting. So as, I, as I've mentioned, like the early AI alignment was much about intelligence explosions and super intelligence liquefying the planet with nanobots and stuff like that. There's a lot of sci-fi stuff in there. And Paul Cristiano deserves a lot of credit for being one of the people that creates much more down-to-earth type scenarios. And what he basically describes scenario like how AI alignment could go wrong without any catastrophe. His idea is just everyone, every step of the way, people just to a little bit more to the AI, let it make a little bit more decisions, let it take control of a few more corporations, deploy a few more recommender algorithms bit by bit. And bit by bit, humans just lose all connection to reality. We, we just read and see whatever we want. The economy is run completely by algorithms, just step by step, no, no point in time, just bit by bit, all human corporations are outcompeted by alignment things. And at some point, that's it. Just humans have no more influence. No one ever did anything. There was no war. There was no fight. It was just at some point, we're just all sitting around and have no more influence on our future whatsoever. So, okay, back to Dutch booking. 
Yeah, that's yes. where we inter. <laughs> that's where we interrupt it. Oh, I, I feel that's something that you wanted, you wanted to get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To. That was like an hour ago. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Dutch booking. So this is again like a whole other topic. So this is backed about rationality. Mm. So it's very hard to define what a rational, what is rational. As I say, when you have a Newcomb's paradox, it's I, there's an argument to be made that taking both boxes is rational. That's what we call the causal decision theory. That there's an argument to be made there. But there's other decision theories that would say it's not rational to do that. So there's a debate about a philosophical debate about what is rational what is the correct definition of the world rational what if you could modify your own rationality what should you modify it to be and this is it's philosophy so there's a lot of debate here of course but what i personally find is the most satisfying answer i found so far is basically to be immune to dutch booking the idea about dutch booking is that assuming you have someone who can offer you bets that you can take or refuse and that this person can reliably offer you bets in such a way that you will always lose money. And this is also similar to the idea of if you like pineapple more than salami and you like salami more than cheese and you like salami, you know, cheese more than pineapple, I can make a lot of money by charging you one cent to, to exchange your piece of pizza over and over again. And this is also got a money bump. <laughs> so this is the circular reference thing, right? Yeah, like for example, yeah, if you want to be in the one country, in the one city more than the other city, than the other city, than the other city, and you're willing to pay money to move from one to the other, you'll pay infinite money going in circles all the time. And the theory is that if you had a good rationality, this should not happen. Is that it should be forbidden for, from this kind of stuff to happen. And the more general class of Dutch book or money pump attacks should be impossible. You should find your theory. It should be impossible to extract unlimited amount of your resources without for no reason. But could, but could I gen gently challenge on that? Because it seems like that would be an inconsistent utility function if that existed. But if it was an AI agent, that would just, as you say, it would spend infinite amounts of money on Uber and it would always be moving. But if it was me, maybe I would move around a few times and then I would, my system too would kick in and I'd, I'd think, hang on, this um, is stupid. I'm going around in circles well, here. This um, is I'm just going to stay in Berkeley for a while. This is what Yank was saying earlier about if you want to model this, just put a dependency on T. The parameters depend on T and then you're good. Yeah. But is it possible though? Is, is it possible to have an inconsistent utility function? What's wrong with that? Yeah. So it's not just our utility functions. It's also our rationality. So there are certain ways. Okay, so this is, I couldn't do this without a whiteboard and an hour of time to rehearse it exactly. If you update your beliefs and things in a Bayesian way, that is a very hard, a very computationally hard. So if you use like a Bayesian theorem to update your beliefs, which is the correct way to do it, you is like almost attractable. And you could show that if agents, for example, do not do this Bayesian, but they do it in like certain like approximate ways that are biased, you can offer them bets about their beliefs and then like present them information and offer them new bets in a circular way that you that by because they're not updating completely, because they're updating incorrectly, the, the beliefs they have are biased in a way that allows you to extract infinite money from them. And so Dutch booking is a large category. The circular preferences is just a funny example, but it is a much wider theory of finding flaws in the way decisions are made in order to extract money from them. So uh, like in many ways you can like frame, there's like versions you can frame Newcomb's paradox in different ways to extract money from people that don't two, that don't one box. There's ways to, so it, it's, <laughs> Could, could I challenge that as well? Because we, we talked about the social dilemma and then there's a free will, there's an addiction debate there. Do people really want to be watching this crappy content on Facebook? 
do people really want to be gambling? And okay. it's so paternalistic for us to say that I don't think that's good for people because I, I think part of human flourishing is doing stupid stuff. If we right. had a, a consistent utility function, we would be so boring. All right, I'd like to separate two topics. I'd like to separate the topic of decision theory, which is a purely mathematical topic. That's what I'm talking about right now. This, is, this has nothing to do with philosophy, nothing to do with humans, nothing to do with the real mm -hmm. world. The purely mathematical uh, question of is there a un are there uniquely better rationalities than other rationalities is a purely mathematical question. The reason I said that is you said I'm as a human. If I could choose my own reward or utility function, then I would choose one which was consistent. So I, I think you, you were making that statement. I, okay, you know that's fair. That's fair. But the the next thing I'm going to say is is again your decision theory is not your utility function. Your decision theory is what you use to optimize your utility function. So if your utility function includes sitting around all day and eating potato chips, then having the best decision theory cannot be worse. Having a better decision theory will only improve your ability to sit around all day and eat potato chips on the couch all day. So it's important to separate your decision theory from your utility function. Uh, what you just described, what you just asked about what if humans actually want, etc., as a philosophical argument about first and second order preferences. So there is this idea of like first order preferences, I want to do X. And then there's a second order preference of like, I want to do X. I think this is a super fascinating, important topic that I'd like to talk about, but it is a separate topic from the decision theory. Okay. Are there any other scenarios where humans could go around in loops like this? I mean, imagine that you had, you damaged your memory. And so you just kept making the same mistakes in life again and again. You kept, you yes. got into self-destructive spirals of behavior that was deleterious to your well-being. So humans do stuff like that all the time. Gambling addiction, drug addiction, romantic love. I don't know if you've ever happened to you, sure has to me. Unfortunately. <laughs> and, yes. But I think those are like separate. Those aren't because our decision theory is bad. Those are just because humans are flawed in many ways. There's many other ways in which we're flawed before we even get to a formal decision theory. So I think formal decision theory is interesting from the perspective of trying to understand very powerful AIs. There's this question of if I give you a very large system, a very large program, how, what can you tell me about this program? And it's provable that in the limit, you can tell me nothing. This is Rice's theorem, is that if you give me an arbitrary Turing machine, I can't prove any non-trivial statements about this machine. But this is, but we can construct a subsystem or certain classes of systems that we can predict. That's how our computers work, is that we construct our computers to abstract away quantum noise so we can better predict how they will behave in the real world so we can behave treat them better. And this is also what I meant about AlphaGo. Is that I can't predict which move AlphaGo will take, but I can predict that it is very likely to win a game. So this is a statement I can make about a stronger, more intelligent entity. So the, the reason I'm interested in decision theory is that if there is a very, like one or a class of our most powerful decision theories, then we can predict that a most powerful intelligence will use those decision theories. And if we can then derive any knowledge from how those decision theories work, we might be able to say things about how these incredibly intelligent systems operate, even without us ourselves being that intelligent. That's why I'm interested in that. But you said there'd be a, a massive asymmetry, so we wouldn't be able to make many assertions at all if we are the lower intelligence. Potentially, yes. I, I, so like uh, in the limit, it's like if you have a program with a certain amount of resources, okay, now we're getting to complexity theory. This is one of my favorite topics. <laughs> there is like this concept of Kolmogorov complexity, which is this idea of the minimum possible length of a program that gives you a certain output. 
And this is a very fascinating concept, a very useful concept in thinking about programs. And I find it's fascinating that this is a thing that exists. It's, it's incomputable because you have to solve the halting problem to find it, but it is a thing that exists. And this, okay, Jesus Christ, wait, hold on a second. I have to like not start talking about pseudo random numbers, but basically if we have an algorithm that has a certain minimum length, like it needs at least these many steps to perform the algorithm, then, but we only have a smaller number of computational steps we are allowed to perform then we can always only approximate the solution of the actual problem or guess at it, but that's the same as approximating. So in the same way, because let's, if an agent is irreducibly complex to a certain degree, like I, I would expect that I would expect that I can, that the end, the compute I would need to make as good decisions alpha go in a go game are on the same order of magnitude as the decision of the computation that alpha go actually performs. And there's no way for me to perform one step of calculation and immediately know what AlphaGo is going to do next. That's just a fundamental property of how the algorithm works. This is a fundamental mathematical property of this algorithm. There's a the Kamalgar of complexity is has a certain size. And if I don't have at least enough compute to run this algorithm, I can't I can only make approximate predictions about it. There's also a compute and storage trade-off. So you could argue that AlphaGo has has memorized basically a whole bunch of different moves. Sure. So I still need n steps to read n memory. And well, to <clears throat> GPT, I want to bring that up very briefly because we're talking about memorizing moves. Now, you feel GPT three is a, a great wake up call for society in general as a warning about the potential of AI and as well as its its impact on the internet information space. Now that's a valid argument. You've presented in other talks about how GPT-3 does amazing things. You can literally feed it information and it's almost like talking to a person. Yes. Yannick and I believe Tim as well have taken quite a look at GPT-3 and what it's actually learning, whether or not it's just learning a hash function, a search function, whether or not it's just memorizing things and with so many parameters. How do you answer that charge when there is good evidence that GPT-3 is memorizing are we actually talking about intelligence here? Or are we talking about smart searches? And if it's not intelligence, then should we actually be that worried? All right. Question. A kind of question. Are humans intelligent? Oh, occasionally. <laughs> are you sure? They yep. just memorize a lot of shit. Have you ever talked to a school kid after they you know, wrote an essay? They have no concept of what was in the essay. They're just regurgitating things the teacher said. There's no understanding. There's no de- like I've corrected college level essays before as a TA job and stuff. They have no idea. It's just regurgitation. It's just babbling. There is there is no underlying theory or anything. I don't think humans are intelligent. I think it's an open problem whether humans are intelligent or not. That is that is that's an extremely valid point, and that's why yes. the, the specific <laughs> argument that I made at least wasn't that gpt3 isn't intelligent but that gpt3 isn't doing whatever you might call reasoning which is if humans do something they do memorize certainly a lot but they also appear to do something like manipulate logical symbols in their head in a stepwise fashion which we might call something like reasoning like if this then that and so on which i can't see any evidence that something like GPT-3 does so far. Yeah. 
that this is one of the main problems in intelligence because as you pointed out even in humans you can teach kids how to do their times tables and what the rules are for multiplication and they can use their system too but after a while they will just memorize the results and they'll shortcut and this this problem of imitation is pervasive would and neural networks are interesting because if you look at AlphaGo I said earlier almost taking the piss a little bit that it's memorized all of the moves but of course it hasn't because there are an incredibly high number of possible moves what it's actually done is it's through self play it's generated a whole bunch of data and then it's created this hierarchical entangled representation of all of these different board positions and then inside that convex hull of possible positions it's cleverly interpolating between them that's exactly what gpt does but as Yannick said, what we humans do is we have this ability to abstract and go one level up and to reason and to distill our own knowledge. It's definitely not doing that. All right. I'd like, I'd like to say three different things. The first thing is I want to lay out just for the sake of getting the things heated. I want to say my completely subjective things without any backing. I would just say some, something I believe and I'm not going to back it up. I'm going to get back to it later. And I would say that's you know, provocative on purpose. Then I'm going to say how I perceive my brain actually working and why I think that how I that how most people describe their brain working is at least not my experience at all. And then I want to make the case that the, then I'm going to get back to then I'm going to make a case about uncertainty and computation about how we don't actually know how all this is working. OK, I'm going to start with the first thing. I think GPT-3 is artificial intelligence, AGI. I think GPT-3 is as intelligent as human. And I think that actually is probably more intelligent than a human in a restricted way, in a very specific way. I'm going to back this up. I'm going to back this up. Don't worry. And I also believe that in many ways, uh, it is more purely intelligent than humans are. I think that humans are approximating what GPT-3 is doing, not all, vice versa. And that's it's that, that yeah this is gonna be uh it's uh, <laughs> yeah it's a little controversial let, let me try to explain this i've read this great essay recently called babble and prune which kind of explained a little bit about how they perceive their brain to work and this is very similar to how i think so when i sit down to write a talk so i have to give a talk the way i do it is that i first generate a bunch of really bad talks i start i just start talking i just open my mouth and just start speaking and a lot of things come out and I'll start saying, hey, everybody, I am a, no, no, wait, I should open this differently. And then I go back and then I regurgitate another sound. And then eventually I find something that I like, and then I keep that. And then I start regurgitating more things. And then I pick and prune. There's a lot of things that I seem to showing that humans are, do things like that. Like humans, the neocortex seems to do kind of some like generative modeling of some kind, whatever. And so there is very weak evidence that GPT-3 may or may not be doing something like that. But I want to make a much, much stronger claim here. So this is the third thing I want to talk about is that from an algorithmic perspective, from the purely abstract theoretical computational perspective, it is defining what is the same algorithm, what is the same computation, what properties computations have are undefined questions, are, are questions that require solving the halting problem. In that regard, it is a... We don't know what GPT-3 does. We do not know, and anyone that says they does is lying because they can't know what GPT-3 is actually doing because that, that question is undefined. That is an underdefined answer. And we don't know what humans do. 
we we know some things about what is going on but the the magic of turing universality means that you know even a very modestly powerful algorithm can approximate any other possible algorithm so if we look at the brain there doesn't actually seem to be any module for like logical reasoning for like symbol manipulation or whatever and this is actually something that humans are very bad at people have to be taught this they have to practice this this is not something they do automatically so in many ways, it looks like we are using a completely different mechanism to approximate a symbol manipulation algorithm, which is not that surprising. So I, I'm going to talk about it in a second after you guys can all yell at me uh, about why I about uh, you yeah, talk about why I think GB3 is so intelligent. But I would like to make a, a statement of uncertainty here: is that I said this obviously for the memes, but at the heart, I think that the even asking. Is this algorithm intelligent is a question that doesn't really make sense from a computational perspective. The question is far more, does it produce intelligent behavior? Does it produce a behavior with a um, reasonable time complexity? There is this concept in computational complexity theory of different levels of complexities. And if you get into these exponential complexities, even very small problems quickly become impossible to compute. And to me, if I had an algorithm that has like an NP oracle, so it can just evaluate every possible timeline simultaneously in one time step, it would be more intelligent than any other system ever. It, by definition, it would by definition always choose the correct choice. It would never be wrong. But then you could ask the question, but is it really intelligence? Because it's actually just evaluating all possible timelines. So there is a definition of intelligence of compression. There's this idea that intelligence is the compression, the exploitation of structure in the structure of the space of the search function is that a more intelligent system can reach a better approximation of the correct answer in a smaller polynomial amount of steps. And if you define it that way, then I can see that there might be a definition of intelligence in an algorithmic sense that could make sense. But if that is the definition you're looking for, then we can't talk about GPT-3 in that regard because we just don't have, we don't know what the true entropy of language is. We don't know what the true difficulty of the search problem is. And so I, I think that yeah. there's no way to really answer that question. But I think we're playing fast and loose with the definition of intelligence here because yes. compression and machine learning are very closely related. I can buy that, especially coming back to our notion of Kolmogorov complexity earlier. But no one really thinks that machine learning algorithms are intelligent, not seriously. I do. I think this brings us on just quickly to the scaling hypothesis, because I think this is a nice segue. We all know Gwern. He said that the, the strong scaling hypothesis is that once we find a scalable architecture like self-attention or convolutions, which like the brain can be applied fairly uniformly, we can simply train ever larger neural networks and ever more sophisticated behavior will emerge naturally as the easiest way to optimize for all the tasks and data. He really thinks that if we just scale these things up, we're going to get onto the intelligence explosion in a little while, but there's this, the singularity is near by Ray uh, Kurzweil. And he really described this concept that as we exponentially increase our technology and computing and genetics and so on, that we'll almost have this runaway breakaway effect where we'll just lose control and, and the thing will just get better and better yes but and you believe that's happening with gpt3 yes so so a little bit of hit backstory perhaps so i thought deep learning was dead in 2017 i was convinced in 2017 that the bubble has burst deep learning is dead like why do we even research it there's nothing more to have here we've well, we had the all these gans 
Yeah, wow. Yeah, exactly. What did they do to offend you? <laughs> <laughs> so, no, no, like I get you. I'm just trying to explain my own a little bit intellectual journey here. So I was super unconvinced that deep learning was getting anywhere. It was such a simple method. Are you kidding me? Matrix multiplications? Wow, intelligence, boys, we did it. It's, you know, it seemed so preposterous that there's ever, and I looked at the brain and had all this complexity. I, Cause I came from neuroscience to a large degree. One of my first love was neuroscience. I, I love neuroscience and I, I saw all these complex things the brain does. It's so clever. And you know, it's like mystical feeling of oh, obviously the brain must be doing something so much more intelligent and so much more clever and whatever. And from that moment, I gave a talk in like 2017 in a local meetup about how deep learning is dead. And that day cursed me. That was the, from that day forward, I was cursed. That every single day, everybody in the entire world were worked to show me wrong. <laughs> so, so everything, so I was again and again, every time I said, oh, deep learning cannot do X, a paper that would do that would come out the next day. It was like a magical power. And, yeah, and, then, time, and then there's a chorus of people that say, oh, that's not really intelligence. We yeah, need one step not, more. Yeah. So this happened to me over and over and over again. And what is the definition of intelligence? Doing the same thing over and over again and prospecting a different result. So at some point I was like, okay, you know what? Maybe I was wrong. <laughs> Maybe I was goddamn wrong. So the height of this was last year with GPT-2. So GPT-2 came out and there's a lot of hype that people like, oh, this might be intelligence, whatever. And I was like, nah, look, they just made this thing bigger and look, it's cute, but it's not that big of a deal. And I would have bet, I would have bet any money on it. I was like, nope, this is it. They, okay, they made their big stupid model. This is the end. Look, it's, it, it makes slightly funnier sentences, but that's it. This is but, the limit. But, but just on that, let's say you're right. Let's say that there will be some intelligent behavior that emerges from these huge systems. The cloud providers, I think they've given up the, the old school conception that we should understand intelligence and they're now playing the memorization game. They're using their petabyte cloud storage devices and they're just basically memorizing everything. But these functions are extremely large. They will run out of space before anything interesting happens. All right. Yeah, and that's basically what I was thinking. That What you just described was my belief one year ago. I do not longer endorse that belief because along comes GPT-3. And GPT-3 to me, I was like, so first of all, I was just like, huh, do they not have anything better to do with their budget? And so I, I look into this thing, I start playing it with whatever. There's this idea, so this might be a little controversial, but I think it's important to, to young scientists out. This is something I wish someone would have told me. Most of science, of doing science is about taste. It's about having a good subjective hunch for what is good, what is worth looking into, what is important, what's interesting. The difference between a mediocre scientist and a really good scientist is to have a really good taste. And you can disagree with me there, but I don't think there is a, there is that we wish there was an objective way to be a good scientist, but there isn't, it's all about taste. And so when I sat down with GPT-3 and I started experimenting with it, whatever, and I read the paper, I, I, I fell out of my chair. I was like, Jesus Christ, it, this is the end. Because, and I was shocked that other people were not seeing what I'm doing. So I, I would like to try to convey what I felt, just like on a subjective level. So it's, and you could disagree with me afterwards. So like, fact number one, GPT-3 did not complete a full epoch on its data. It saw most of its data only once. But it had such a good wide knowledge of topics it couldn't have seen more than once. This implies that it was capable of learning complete concepts in a single update step, which is something that everyone keeps you know, saying deep learning can't do. 
but it seems that it learned some kind of meta learning algorithm within its own weight updates to allow it to rapidly learn in these new concepts, similar to how humans, like when you're a baby, you take weeks to learn a single word. But now if I introduce a single new word to you, you would immediately understand it. it it's yes. already learned this hierarchical entangled representation. So it's not seeing it for the first time. It's resonating on a path in the network. All these neurons are firing up. So my point is just, this is very much how humans learn. The, the, the fact that it became more efficient in its learning by having these like reusable structures, like that was shocking to me. It's not it learned universal reusable concepts to understand speech the same way a human would have learned speech, uh, probably. And that is, that is, that was very surprising to me. And again, it's like, so when I used, I, I make a, I have a little video game project with a friend of mine where we is supposed to be a GPT inspired powered game. It's a dream simulator. So you enter like a keyword and it creates a little dreamscape for you to live, to walk around and you would be like NPCs that talk to you about your topic or whatever. It's a cool project. And so we used to use GPT-2 and what we had to do, for example, we wanted to associate keywords with different emotions. So if you enter, I know, cyberpunk, you want it to be like dark, moody, rainy, city, around like all these like things to associate with it. And we had a super complicated idea of how we put things into like, in, into like dictionaries and see like related words and like look up things, do all these complicated things. And then GPT-3 came around and we just entered GPT-3, what emotions are associated with X? And I'll just tell you, you could just, the, what, what is so shocking about GPT-3 is that you could just talk to it. You just tell GPT, you don't have to formulate a complex close question or whatever to, for it to fill out. You just, GPT, the following are characters in a video game about dream simulations. And I'll just output you a list of characters. You could say the, the, the following is a comedy about, you know, Peter Thiel and Elon Musk. And they'll just output you a comedy like this happened. It's on, I think it's on Aram's blog and whatever it was a change not just in quantity but in how these models could think and the, the and how you could prompt it in a way not, not think though it's just a really clever hash table how do you know can i challenge you on the on the gpt3 has seen or learns from like a single update step it yeah, is sure. true that it has seen most of its training data only once but it has seen the higher quality portions many times. And I, I haven't seen a, a convincing even single instance where it is shown that what it learns or what it outputs has been only in that particular training data that it has only seen once. So it's very possible that it, it does the many steps on, let's say, the things that is seen multiple times and then just maybe slightly adjusts, slightly connects different things with the things it only it only sees once. All right. Yeah, that is yeah. perfectly fair. Uh, I'd like to, by the way, just, I usually preface this, but this is uh, just general. I might be fucking wrong. <laughs> There's always a chance that everything I'm saying is just absolutely dead wrong. I've been very wrong in the past about most things. I've always, I'm not like... Like I am so smart, and this is definitely true. I'm just trying to see see how I, say how I perceive this. This is yeah. the place for strong opinions and, exactly. no, and not really <laughs> evidence to back them up. So uh. exactly, we we haven't got a clue either. But we, we spoke to Sarah Hooker from the Google Brain team, and she she said something quite interesting. There's a lot of work around compression and sparsity in neural networks, and uh, she was saying that most of the representational capacity in the neural network is actually wasted memorizing hard examples. So what's interesting about whether it's vision data or language data is that there are 
so many common patterns in the head of the distribution and these really strong representations get um, established in the neural network and probably you can delete about 90% of the connections in GPT-3 and it wouldn't even make much difference. Potentially. I'd like to quickly make the try to back up my case about why I think a GPT-3 is as intelligent as a human, if that's okay. Yes, I was or, what, I was going to ask you that. <laughs> yes. Because, yes. okay, it might be a bit of a cop-out because you might not like the definition I'm using here, but it, here's the here's my definition of what I mean by that. I want to clarify what I mean by that. What I mean by that is, is that I expect that if I trained uh, a human in similar way, in similar tasks, I gave them the same amount of compute, I, say, I gave them the same amount of things, I expect them to behave, to perform similarly well, similar, not necessarily much worse or much better. And because here's how I visualize the scenario. GPT-3 is trained in a universe of text. It has physics. Its universe is a 1D token-based universe. It has a sense of physics. There is an entropy to the data that there's a generating function of the universe that GPT-3 is trying to learn. GPT-3 is learning a generating function of a universe. This generating function is the generating function of English web text, whatever that function might be. And in similar ways, humans in the real world learn a, the generating function of our physical universe or an approximation of it. I often see on people on, you know, in Twitter, whatever, cough, Gary, Marcus, Karf, saying things like, oh, look, I asked the AGI, if, I asked a GP3 if a mouse is bigger than an elephant, and it said yes. So obviously it's stupid. But I think this is like measuring a fish's fitness by its ability to climb. The only thing the GPT-3 was incentivized to learn, the only thing it had access to is this universe of text, is this physical function of a textual universe. This textual universe correlates with the real world, but it's not the same as the real world. And this is not different from us humans. We do not perceive the correct quantum field underlying reality. Instead, we also learn a correlated universe of you know macroscopical phenomena of colors and objects and stuff like this this is not reality nothing that we see is real it's a virtual environment that is approximating a real you know the real universe and our universe happens to learn so we happen to learn certain things about our universe like shape color movement space and such that do not exist in GPT-3's universe. There is no space, there is no time, there might be time, but there's no space, there is no movement, there's no inertia, there's no gravity, none of these things exist. And so it seems fundamentally flawed to me to then, to then say, oh, look, we trained it on X and it didn't learn Y. That's not a counter argument. What you're articulating is that GPT-3 is an autoregressive language model and yes. all it's doing is predicting the next word. Yes. And frankly, it's incredible that it does as well as it does, because yes. it seems to have learned this Im implicit knowledge base, yes. um, even though you've never told it what to do. So as a thought experiment, if you thought it was possible to generate, let's say we had a BERT type model and we could generate, because the problem is we, ha we have hardly any training data. What if we could generate a wonderful corpus, which represented a convex hull over all of the human discourse that could possibly exist? Do you think that would be intelligent? I, again, define intelligent is that for me, intelligent, that, that's why I talked about well, compression. Well, well, but, I'll say it a different way. So GPT-3 at the moment, it's rubbish. All it does is, is produce coherent text, it but it's completely inconsistent. Yeah. It can write better blog posts than I can, can sometimes. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, but it's just the imitation. It doesn't, if you ask it, as you said, like any kind of entailment, it'll say that elephants can fit through doors. It's just completely stupid. But, a, but so here right. is a, 
Connor's defense here, GPT-3, it's not just better than GPT-2. It is remarkably better. It is insanely better. It's one of the few, like, I, I'm not a fan of the, the intelligence explosion hypothesis, but this is probably the best evidence I've seen that's even, like, a feasible thing. It, it's, it's not just that it's doing better. I, I don't think it's intelligent. But the argument that this is a sign that intelligence may just be a case of throwing enough parameters and enough data and enough compute, th- things like intelligence start to come into view in the distant future, as opposed to being like, no, it's all statistics. It's all statistics and engineering. Now it's, this is dicey. No yeah. one cares if it's intelligent. Like As we said, that depends on the definition of intelligence. That's, yeah. I, I, what scared me the most in the GPT-3 paper was this straight line of perplexity. No, I, I see it's a log plot, but no sign of slowing down. Like no sign that there is ever an end inside where we can just throw in 10 times more compute and 10 times more data and we get out 10 times better, whatever it is, intelligence, statistical association, whatever that is. To the other point, and I think it, con- it concords with what you're saying, Connor, and maybe it's a bit what Tim wants to formulate is the following. Some if I just train GPT-3 on, and it's just trained on the text that exists, it can very well interpolate between that text and maybe a bit extrapolate in terms of the pattern that exists. But if there is any information at all in that corpus, which we can might agree there is information, that information had to be produced. And it was produced presumably by humans, right? Uh, maybe not, maybe only... 0.1% of humans actually contribute any information other than regurgitating information that's already there. But all of this information somehow had to be produced by some humans. So I, maybe that's what Tim alludes to in a different way. And then I can frame this in, in the way you're formulating is that what the humans do, all they do is just they take the generating function of the real world and they regurgitate that. And one output of that is, is language, right? So that's how they produce the language corpora. But all they do is basically just learn the generating function of the universe itself. So you're saying that humans are generating the data and GPT-3 is learning it. And in a sense, that means GPT-3 is less intelligent because it's it's not exploring or producing anything new. So the volume of the convex hull is not increasing as people use GPT-3. In fact, as soon as it's trained, it's getting old. All right. Before we add more technical depth, can I quickly jump in here for a few things? Yes, please <laughs> do. Right. I'd, so I, I, I probably explained this very terribly. Uh, I apologize to any co- podcast listeners that actually stick through my rants. But one of the few definitions of intelligence that I also think is very useful that I like to mention again is the definition by Jeff Hawkins in his book on intelligence, where he defines yeah. it as a kind of being able to predict, which is very related to being able to compress. This brings us to the concept of the, the great lookup table. The great lookup table is a philosophical thought experiment. Is that imagine you had a agent who is composed of a lookup table of all possible states the universe could be and an intelligent output to it. Is this intelligent or not? This is, so this is why computational complexity matters, is there's a lot of fascinating things about how computational complexity and reality 
are like important, like connect. There's lots of things of like how, oh, you could go back in time or you could reconstruct things from a black hole if you had exponential compute and stuff like that. There's like weird things that have been popping up in, in physics lately like that. And I predict that more of this is going to happen is that there is a fundamental, like as fundamental as possible difference between an algorithm that runs in polynomial time and run that runs in exponential time. I think, I think, I truly believe that there is a fundamental difference between them is that yes, if you had a grand lookup table that you know has all possible inputs, then and it would act intelligence, would it be intelligent or not? I think that this is a one of those questions that is basically incoherent because constructing such a table is fundamentally impossible. It is fundamentally cannot ever possibly be done. There's no way you can construct a table that's exponentially larger than the actual universe. It, like you cannot do that. That will never happen. You can speculate about that for fun, but it's not a, but it's, it's, it's a, it's an, it's an invalid question. It's a malfunction. It breaks your assumptions. Up. As a point of order though, like surely we, we're basing this entire presumption, uh, this entire discussion of AGI basically on asymptotics here on the assumption that it's possible to create one of these objects but it's not provably possible. And so it, to say, oh, it's maybe, what if our artificial general intelligence is the grand lookup table? No, you know, he, if one is impossible, the other is impossible. No, no, here, so I, I, I think, I think we need thing. to be careful about the assertion of the possibility of these arguments. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's where, here's where computational complexity is that the Kolmogorov complexity, the length of the shortest program that generates that table might be small. That's important. The table itself, by definition, is exponential in the size of the universe because it has to have every possible state the universe could be. But it might be that there is a short, a small program that can generate that table. It can be that the Kolmogorov complexity of that table is small. And then, so then it's like the question, assuming I have this short program, assuming I have a short program that can generate this lookup table for any subspot I want, for any possible thing, is that not intelligence? If that's not intelligence, I don't know what is. The thing is, you have to take into account the how long will it take for that program to execute? Of course, that, that's that's then that is like other questions. Okay, Intel intelligence shouldn't really be measured in comparison to the amount of compute you give it. So if this comes to compressibility. Is in it is how much can we approximate this this is perfect grand lookup table? How much? How close? How convex is the approximation of these? of these outputs, how feasible are them? What is the what does the landscape look like? And this is this is this concept of having structure in these in space, in the space of policies. Is that if everything was random, then the grand lookup table is the only kind of intelligence that exists. But our universe is not random. So we have other intelligence that can approximate it to varying degrees, to varying levels, and can, with much, with exponentially smaller amounts of compute. We could construct yeah all possible Go trees, that would be the grand lookup table for Go. We could construct that tree, but it would be so large that it cannot really exist in our physical universe. But we can make AlphaGo, which is a much shorter program, a much smaller program, that can still approximate to acceptable levels of degree. But the folks at AlphaGo, they did what you said. They had a computer program to self-play and to essentially create a whole bunch of data. But Chalet would say it's not intelligent because they're buying skill with unlimited priors and, and experience. So what they did was they, neural networks are still sample inefficient. They still had to put loads and loads of um, training rounds in there. And it, it, it ended up with this huge neural network. So why is that intelligent? 
Okay, I guess we're I guess we've reached that point where we have to we have to push the big red. Okay, we're stretching the definition of intelligence too far button, and we have to take a step back. We are intelligence is what Marvin Minsky called a suitcase word. You could pack all these different definitions into it, and they don't have to be compatible. So maybe we should try to use different words here. Let's taboo the word intelligence. No one is allowed to say intelligence uh, for now. Instead, we're going to try to use different things. We're going to use like sample efficiency. We're going to use computational efficiency, final performance, and and try to see if we can make the same arguments with those words. Sound good? Yep, that's that would be a great advice, I think, for the whole field, which would have to be restructured into the subfields of A, artificial sample efficiency and artificial. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I I think that's a, it's a great, it's a great suggestion. Just a reminder that we are often talking way past each other. And then you have like, people ask me also sometimes for like little snippets they can put into their articles, like a newspaper or something is like, but is it really intelligent? And and (laughs) yeah, but I want to maybe finish off with a little bit of a connection to, because at the beginning and in between, you were alluding to things like, I don't care how we make a better world. I I would, I I just want it to happen and so on. And you also alluded to the economy, what we do with trying to align the economy and so on. So where do you see, or do you see a large or a small connection to something like AI ethics and what people are trying right now to do in let's say the real world where we talk about banning should we ban face recognition how much of our our data should go into these algorithms can we parse out data differential privacy and so on how much of a connection do you see there or how much do you think general ai alignment research is disconnected from these things i have both very flattering and very spicy things to say about ai ethics as it currently is practiced Please. <laughs> uh, by definition, AI ethics is obviously a good thing. Obviously. Making AI do more ethical things. That is obviously something that we want. Of course. But I am, let's say, not super happy with everything how the field in practice actually operates. This is not in general. There are wonderful people in this field doing very important work, but I'm not super happy about how everything is doing. In many ways, AI ethics has become a bit of a an attempt to solve problems that are real like bias in data sets or like using ai to sentence people unfairly and stuff that that's that shit's fucked of course that should that's not a good thing but it's in many ways it is trying it is trying to think of a good metaphor here it's it's trying to put out like your it's trying to put out your handkerchief fire while your house is on fire it's yeah you're right those are problems but they're not going to solve the house fire the, so like one of the reasons I don't work, I don't really work much on these like common problems of bias text generation or, or deep fakes or something like that is, first of all, it's not my comparative advantage. It's not something I'm unusually good at and other people are very good and are working on that. And second of all, if we have super powerful AGI that's unaligned, it doesn't fucking matter if we regulate it or not. It's just, that's just, it just doesn't matter if we ban, we if, if the, the government says, oh, AI, we forbid you from turning us all into paper clips. Quote by someone who was about to be paper clipped. It's- yeah, I, th- I think most of these people, though, don't believe that AGI or the intelligence explosion is, is a real threat. So they are yes. super focused in on what they perceive to be the threats to society now. 
Yeah, and I understand that. I can respect that. I disagree, but that's fine. But like, that's part of a healthy field is for different people to focus on different subjects. Like, they're probably saying I'm absolutely crazy, and they're going to find plenty of choice bits in this talk to show that I'm crazy. I'm sure. It's yeah. And on this, because um, Yannick was was drawing a, a corollary between AI ethics and the alignment problem, and I really like that because we we were talking about that utility function earlier with the cauldron. And it, it just, it's very human understandable. And we have a real problem with ethics as well, that from a legal framework point of view, we need these hidden attributes and the levels of discrimination to be understandable by humans. And Chris Olar has done more for machine learning interpretability than any other person, I think, in the last few years. He's got the activation atlas and the, the feature visualization articles on Distill, which is wonderful. He believes that it is possible to understand deep learning. I, I disagree. I, I think that the whole point of machine learning is that it does something which we can't explicitly program. So do you, do you think that's a fundamental problem that we can only test, we can test the what, but we can't understand the why or the how? Yeah. Yeah. I'm very happy Chris Ola does the work he does. I think it's really cool, but yeah, I think it's, I don't think it's going to work. We have people on our Discord server who disagree with me, who work on interpretability, whatever. But here, I, I base I once saw this great graph. It's like, the, the y-axis is like interpretability and the x-axis is strength of the model. And so it starts really high, like simple models are really easy to understand. And then as it goes up like a little bit, the model is confused and can't really make good concepts. So it's hard to understand. Then it goes back up because uh, the model can make like crisp, clean, definitely cut up, you know, concepts in a more meaningful way. It's like where humans and where our current AI systems are. And then it plunges because eventually it just becomes so intelligent. It becomes so powerful that it's just no computationally reducible way to understand what it is supposed to do. The con that the I expect that the Kolmogorov complexity of a sufficiently intelligent system is just so high that the amount of compute you need to exert to understand it is on the order of actually just running the system. Yeah, and this is what Rich Sutton says, that we need to have massive amounts of compute. But not only that, a lot of these deep learning algorithms, are, we were talking about adversarial examples are features, not bugs last week. And th these algorithms, they learn just crazy, stupid features that, that are present in, as the data presents itself to us as pixels on a planar manifold, there are these features that seem to work quite well that bear no relation to the real world whatsoever. And then we just memorize those features on the long tail. It's just completely crazy, but it seems to work. Yeah, and I expect more of that to happen in the future. So I'm not super confident that that interpretability is a practical way forward because it always basically puts a limit on how powerful our agents are allowed to get. At some point, just our, our, our agents might output a, a decision and they might output a, a, a minimal length explanation, but that minimal length explanation might be so long that it's just impossible for us to ever evaluate in a reasonable time frame. And I expect this to happen, you know, sooner rather than later. So I don't think interpretability, at least for me post, personally, I don't think is a particularly um, likely way to succeed. Do you think there is, there is anything that is useful or practical from your perspective that we could do in terms of, let's say, regulations or kind of practices among AI to, to tackle that house fire that you're talking about, like the big alignment problem? To be clear, I am not a policy person, so I'm not going to say anything about like laws or regulation because right. I just don't know enough about that. I'm skeptical of the utility of those kinds of processes in general for these kinds of fast-moving, technically complicated things. I'm very skeptical about that. I think government has not done particularly well in the past. I hope that could change. What I would wish for 
is the is basically just a a shift in the way people think about this is that it feels to me to a large degree that many people who go into AI somehow just never think about what happens if I succeed. They never seriously consider what happens if this works. What happens if what happens if everything goes exactly as planned? What I find I know a lot of people and some people here have mentioned that they're not fans of the intelligence explosion. But if you think about it, the intelligence explosion is the least weird future. That is what is going to happen if business as usual continues. If completely normal AI progress on the normal graphs as so far, if nothing unusual happens, intelligence explosions is the default assumption of what will happen. Cholet, and he's my favorite person in the world, but he did write an article um, criticizing the intelligence explosion. He, he says that intelligence is situational. There's no such thing as general intelligence. Your brain is one piece in a broader system, which includes your body, your environment, other humans, culture as a whole. No system exists in a vacuum. Any individual intelligence will be both defined and limited by the context of its existence, by the environment, largely externalized, recursively self-improving systems because of contingent bottlenecks, diminished returns, and counter-reactions arising from the broader context they cannot achieve exponential progress in practice empirically they tend to display linear or sigmoidal improvement which is what we see on, on on here now so he says recursive intelligence expansion is already happening at the level of our civilization but it will keep happening in the age of ai it progresses at roughly linear pace so what do you think about that i think that yeah, you could always make that argument. You could always find fancy, not super defined arguments that, oh, it won't happen because it's hard. Sure. Like, you, fine. <laughs> okay. But the, it's not about, it's not about, I find these arguments very strange. I find these arguments very strange in the sense that it doesn't really matter if it, you know, grows with this exponent or that exponent, or if it grows this or that, or it takes 50 or 100 years, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that at some point, it's going to be strong, it's going to have more, you know, power, more economic control, more intelligence than all humans put together. And whether that happens now or in 50 years or in 100 years or whatever, doesn't really change the core argument. And but if I may push back just a little bit about it, what actually convinced me that the intelligence explosion is definitely going to happen like soon was actually a very simple thought experiment. It said, assume I make an intelligence as smart as a human, just as smart as a single human, right? It's pretty simple to do. Uh, let's assume, like we know it must be possible to make things at least that smart. Takes nine months. Yeah. So let's assume we make it, yeah, we, we, we upload someone's brain, we scan someone's brain, whatever, it doesn't matter. And now we just run it a million times faster. We just buy a million times more CPUs, we just paralyze the thing and run a million times faster. How is that not super intelligence? That entity well, could do a hundred years of thinking in one hour. But this assumes that virtualization of a mind is even possible. There's the argument that if we transfer a human mind into an octopus, it becomes unrecognizable. Uh, Wittgenstein's uh, argument about having a conversation with a lion. No, like th these are, are real things. Our intelligence, how we perceive intelligence is fundamentally linked to not just biology, but the systems we interact with. Children that are raised in the wild, they don't ever really come back. But this argument's facetious because it assumes that intelligence can even develop in such a way. It, it okay. can even Good express quarter. itself but, in such a way. Uh, okay, but you, I could say the same thing to you, is that you assume that it wouldn't. Is that the default of we don't currently see anything that hints that there's anything special about intelligence. There doesn't. We haven't yet found any 
thing that shows us that any of these things are actually possible. These are adding more complexity. Occam's razor, the simplest possible explanation is just every business continues as usual. Is that nothing, we don't find any magical part of intelligence. Our models just continue to get better and better. Human intelligence is just an algorithm like any other. That is the default assumption. Of course, well, something strange could happen. We can't just assume that we can virtualize an agent and speed it up according to Moore's law. I want to counter that. Let's frame it in a way where it's legal everywhere in the world. You can do certain things to your brain. <laughs> it's going to be good. That will convince you that you can speed it up by like a hundredfold at least. Yeah, it's called modafinil or amphetamines. Shower simulator 2020. No, but that's, this is an interesting point, actually, because <laughs> sm <clears throat> smart drugs Sorry. do not improve your intelligence. They improve your processing speed. But if you do an IQ test after taking a bunch of modafinil or racetams or amphetamines or whatever, you will not score better on that intelligence Because test. you're fucking high. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I'd, like to, I'd like to clarify something here. Is that if you speed up a brain's processing, you are slowing down time for it. Is that the if your brain is running at a million times speed, it has, it has a million times more time to think. It has a million times more time to hang out in the shower. But yeah. I guess what I'm saying here is it... it the process, like, yeah, I, I get where this argument's coming from, but there seems to be a degree of detachment. And, and, and maybe it's just we can't even imagine what an, a non-human intelligence looks like. But I don't buy this argument that it's just a matter of waiting for Moore's law to take over. There are signs that Moore's law is going to play a role and certainly a lot of growth. But I find this argument kind of specious. Even from a biological biological standpoint, it's a lot of the workings of your nervous systems are controlled by these, like the myelin sheathing of your neurons. And we know we, we, there is a giant correlation between people's IQs and the kind of quality of their myelin sheathings, which is directly affecting how fast signals can travel through your neurons. So like even in biology, it's like the faster your, ner your nerves the smarter you are. I'm with Connor on the, if like, I see that if you just speed up a brain, it'd become more intelligent to an out outside observer. Uh, uh, just, just my opinion. Yeah. Gentlemen, we've reached time. Connor, it's been an absolute honor and a pleasure having you on, on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. I, I feel that we could speak for another 10 hours, so we need to have you back on, but seriously, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, so I, I would just like to wrap this up with all saying is that whether or not you found any of these arguments super convincing or not, I, I would just to, to think about what if we succeed? What if this actually works? What if everything continues as business normal? How can we make the world a better place? How can we ensure that humans get what they want? And that whatever we become in the, in the, the far future, the other races of the, of the galaxy, if they exist, are proud of what we've become. Thank you so much for having me. Amazing. And in passing, by the way, Connor has a Discord uh, server. And we'll put the details in the description. So if you want to have a conversation with Connor about some of the things we've spoken about today, please join his Discord. Okay, amazing. Excellent. Thanks, folks. Thank you. Okay. Thanks so much. So Bye. I really hope you've enjoyed the episode today. Remember to like, comment, and subscribe. And we'll see you back for a special episode next week.